Thank you. And I wanted to say, if anyone's standing, there's a few seats, well, one maybe, and then you can sit where our postcards are. You can push them aside. They're not, we're not trying to like hog the seats. We want you to sit down, if you want to. Um, I want to thank Skylight for having us here, and especially for stocking not just um, Best Women's Erotica of the Year, but also other erotica. I was here yesterday browsing the fiction shelves. Um, I'm kind of a book nerd, and when I travel, I live in New Jersey, I, I go, always go to a bookstore. Pretty much this is the first thing I do when I go somewhere, and a lot of bookstores don't have any erotica, or maybe they have one book of erotica, so... I really appreciate that. So thank you to Skylight. Um, I have a quick survey question. You can just shout out. Um, where did you guys hear about this event? Oh, thank you. Okay. Time out, Skylight. I know FetLife. Thank you. Hi. What? Meetup. Shout out to Sex Positive LA Meetup Group. I like to I like to survey so I know like where to where to let people know. Any Craigslist people? No. Okay. Well, it was on Craigslist, so there you go. Um, so I'm the editor of this series. Uh, it it started back in 2000 with a different editor, and then there was another editor, and now I'm the third editor. And um, it comes out every year with volume numbers. Um, this was volume one. <laughs> volume two just came out in December, and there will be volume three um, this December. And if any of you are interested, um, this series features stories by and about women, and I am going to be putting up the call for volume four sometime in March, so you can find that at bweoftheyear.com. And if you can't remember that, you can take a postcard, because <laughs> it's on there. Um, I wrote a story in volume one. It's called Flying Solo, and it's a bisexual open marriage travel erotica story. So if that sounds intriguing, you should read it in the book, because I'm going to read, I'm going to do two little snippets. from. I'm going to do one now and one later from authors who couldn't be here tonight, but whose stories I really enjoyed. So um, has anyone been to Comic-Con? Okay. I have not been to Comic-Con, and so I don't really know if this story is an accurate representation of what happens there, but maybe those of you who have been can tell me. And I'm not checking my email up here. I'm just keeping time. This is from Starstruck by Lazuli Jones. Oh, God. He's as gorgeous as he ever was. The banner hanging above the table was displaying a half-body shot of Tecton, the ebony-skinned superhero who made frequent visits to my young adult fantasies. In the shot, Tecton wore his muscle-hugging gold costume, the spandex riddled with rocky patterns. His hair was styled into small dreads. From the center of a thin gold mass, Tecton's sharp black eyes stared down. His gaze was stern, but gentle sharp but soothing. The shot was from 1993. I recognized it because I'd had the same picture cut out from a magazine and taped to my bedroom mirror. I'd stare at it until I got hot and weak in the knees and carefully took the picture down to bring to bed with me. (coughs) How else was a nerdy black girl going to get her sexy kicks in the 90s? Tecton was all muscle and deep rumbling voice, but God, the whole premise of his character was that he was a gentle giant. By day, he was Tyrell Jackson, a construction worker with a secret identity. By night, he was part of the titular Elemental Heroes, a six-person superhero team. And in real life, he was Desmond Kyle, the well-built and deep-voiced hunk who hadn't acted much since the 90s. Being typecast was a stroke of bad luck. Beneath the banner, 20 years older but still radiating sex, Desmond Kyle sat in a muted scarlet dress shirt and smiled and shook hands and signed autographs. The dreads of his youth had been replaced with a short cut streaked with silver. I stood four people away, holding a glossy 8x10 of Desmond and trying to look chill, though my heart was pounding like Tyrell Jackson's jackhammer. I was surprised to see how short the line was. The only people ahead of me were chunky, nerdy boys. I was the only woman in line. I was the only black person in line. I was the only person above age 40 in line. Did I care? 
Hell no. This was the first time in years Desmond Kyle was making a Comic-Con appearance, and I was going to meet him. I was going to talk to him, shake his hand, get him to remember me. The line moved, and the guy in front of me, a tall, skinny 20-something, handed the smiling Desmond a magazine and asked for a dedication. I watched Desmond's large hand and supple fingers glide his signature across the magazine cover. I dreamt about those hands. I used to imagine Tecton crushing my ass in those huge hands, lifting me up and pressing me against the wall. He'd be just back from a rescue mission, still in his costume and mask, sweaty, blood pumping. He'd kiss me, and it would taste like salt and earth. I'd imagine those huge hands cupping my pussy, ripping my panties off, finger-fucking me deep inside while I screamed his name. I would come so hard that I'd rip the spandex from his shoulders. You're a goddess, he'd tell me while I tore the rest of his costume off, stroking his bobbing cock and holding onto his shoulders while I impaled myself. He'd hold me by the hips with his strong hands. He was just that strong and bring me down hard, making me scream and thrash and come again and again. And then he would lift me up using his strong hands, bend me over the bed and plunge his big rock-solid cock inside me until I came another half dozen times. I was 19 and still a virgin with a tenuous grasp of how sex actually worked, but it was still a hell of a fantasy. Back in the real world, I was still standing a few feet away from Desmond, a few feet away when Desmond looked me straight in the eye and beckoned me to come to him. The moment he smiled at me, I forgot my carefully rehearsed spiel and stumbled forward, holding out the glossy photo of him like a gritty, giddy preteen. Well, hello, Desmond said. His voice was like velvet smoke. What's your name? I used to masturbate to pictures of you. <laughs> Angela, I blurted. I'd practiced looking poised and sexy. I'd even worn a classic little black dress with my vintage elemental hero's necklace. But now I felt like a babbling fool. I love you. In the show, I mean. I love Tecton. Thank you, Angela, he said. The way he said my name made me flush from head to belly. I was a funny combination of nervous and aroused. I was nerve-roused. It's great to meet a real fan from back in the day. What was your favorite episode? I spent my early adulthood thinking about your cock. (laughs) Oh, you know, I said dumbly. I could smell his cologne from across the table. It was earthy and spicy, exactly how I had imagined him smelling. The frantic hammering in my chest turned into a pulsing want deep between my legs. I loved everything you did, just everything. His large fingers wrapped around the sharpie as he signed the photo I'd handed him. I imagined what those hands would feel like wrapped around my arms, my legs. One of Tecton's powers was super strength. Desmond looked like pure muscle poured into a gentle, relaxed frame, like he could break you, but he'd rather cuddle. It was very nice meeting you, Angela, Desmond said. He handed me back the signed photo. I'd planned all along to shake his hand, but I only smiled when our fingertips brushed. You gave me the best imaginary orgasms of my life. I walked away from the table, and just like that, the liquid heat pulsing in my veins and between my legs grew cold. I hugged the photo to my chest, shivering as I squeezed my breasts together, feeling like a fool now in my sad little black dress and my sad little pendant with the multicolored iris. I'd spent an awfully long time picking out an outfit for my drooling moron act in front of Desmond. Suddenly, I wasn't a grown-ass, sexy, confident woman anymore. I was the dorky little thing I was back in the 90s, with my stupid box braids I never knew how to style, not like the other stylish girls, and my clothes that always fit weird on my awkward teenage body. I needed a fucking drink. I'm going to stop there, but you should definitely find out what happens when she goes and gets her drink. Um, I'm going to bring up our next reader, and please give her an extra round of applause because it's her first erotica reading. Melina Greenport, who you can find out more about at melinagreenport.com, lives in Los Angeles, where after a 20-year career in television and film, she has shifted her focus to writing fiction. She is relatively new to erotica and having a blast. Melina Greenport. Thank you. Um, I'm in, especially the people who are standing. 
Um, we, were, we weren't sure if anyone was going to be here, so thank you. Um, two of our next two readers um, came here from Northern California, so I'm especially happy to have them here. Um, Jade A. Waters is an erotica author and poetess in sunny California. A lover of candy, coffee, dancing, and endless karaoke, she is happiest when surrounded by words, be they on the page or shared in good conversation. Her short fiction and poetry is featured in over a dozen anthologies from Cleus Press and Stupid Fish Productions, and she is the author of the Lessons in Control trilogy. The first one, The Assignment, is out now in ebook, and you can pick up a postcard back there and she is hard at work on the next book in the series you can find out more about her at jadeawaters.com and follow her on twitter at jadeawaters jade okay. um, hi guys um, are we having fun okay i'm i'm wearing really tall shoes so i'm <laughs> I just use the gadgets, I don't. Yeah. Okay. Um, so uh, Rachel asked for us to give a little background, and I'm about to read um, a snippet from Ophelia II, which was in Best Women's Erotica um, of the Year, Volume 1. So um, this is drawing on my old theater days. I used to act a little bit in college and high school, and um, I was an understudy one year for a role I wanted really, 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 really badly, and the actress assured me I would never have to go on stage. Um, I got to go on stage, but um, this story was like a taking flight of a girl who really wanted to be Ophelia um, in Hamlet, and uh, she also was very very fond of Philip, the gentleman who plays Hamlet himself. So we are back at Philip's house celebrating a good show. Um, Just a little background for you. So I sipped the bourbon. It was hot going down, warming me more than I already was sitting in Philip's apartment with him staring at me with those heavy Hamlet eyes. I attempted to ignore the fight of my heart. I was usually strong enough to resist these terribly silly impulses around him, but it was impossible not to want him, not to imagine Hamlet speaking to me or Philip taking my hand, pining for my love like his character did later on for Ophelia. I suddenly felt like her, a naive girl caught in the throes of some wild vision. It wasn't madness, though it felt like it as he surveyed me. Good show tonight, huh? I asked, needing yet again to get out of my head. Yeah, Tammy was on fire. I propped my elbow on the back of the couch and frowned. He knew I didn't want to hear about Tammy or her wonderful efforts playing Ophelia. I'd confessed it over bruise a month ago when he took me out to celebrate a five-star review from one of the most critical journalists in the business. For some reason, Philip had been more surprised at the review than my frustrated comments with Tammy's rude backstage behavior. But it makes sense. Whenever she's a maniac offstage, she's prepped for the role. I snickered, a loose spiral of my hair falling in my face. Philip caught it in his fingers and brushed it back, and I stared at him, surprised. We should have been on stage together, he murmured. I shrugged. Robert's going to come around, Nat. Hopefully with the next show, you've got the talent. You're sweet, I said. I took another swallow of my drink and placed the glass on his coffee table. Philip caught my hand. I saw you in the wings tonight. I froze. I'd been subtle, and he'd been so into his role I couldn't imagine how he'd seen me. You know I see you there, right? Mouthing the lines, both mine and Ophelia's. He clasped my hand in his, and a fire sparked deep in my belly. Had the bourbon gone to his head? Had it gone to mine? I'm convinced my best moments on stage are with you watching. That's silly, I said, but Philip nodded enthusiastically. You should have been Ophelia. You're perfect for the part. Your hair, your face, everything about you, Nat. So charming and lovely. I trembled in his grasp. Like Ophelia, I had to be going mad. Philip brushed back my curls, lifting the hair on the nape of my neck. Let's run lines for you. Why? Tammy is Ophelia, and she's never going to miss a performance, remember? Tammy is a terrible Ophelia, and one night she will. He tapped my nose. Come on, let's practice. 
I need a script. No, you don't, he said. He shoved back the table and crawled to his knees, ushering his husky off to his bed along the wall. And then he started running lines, beginning with Act 3, Scene 1, right when Ophelia meets Hamlet. He said his first line seriously, as if we were actually on stage, and I shook my head at him. You're crazy. Philip frowned. I'm trying to prove a point. You're an actress. Let's go. Play along. I'd been on the stage many times. I'd graduated with a theater degree, after all, but my parts at Esquire had been minimal, with Tammy being the star she was. Sometimes, her rants backstage and constant insults made it easy to forget that I was once a big part of productions, too. Well? Philip nudged my leg and took my hand again, and I tried to ignore the peel of my heart. Fine, I said. We ran through this scene, Philip's hand clasped around my shaking fingers the entire time. He was theatrical and gorgeous, his brow furrowing and his nostrils flaring at all the appropriate moments. When he peered into my face, I witnessed the same brooding depth he cast over the audience each night, except this time it was directed at me. This time he was Hamlet and I was Ophelia. It was easy to fall into the part. I knew the lines and he was brilliant, drawing emotion and depth into my voice that I never could when I practiced on my own in my apartment. Not without someone acting against me, getting as into the role as he did. He was magnificent. When we finished the scene, he stroked his fingertips across my palm with an encouraging nod. Then his lips turned up to form the incredibly charming grin the audience never got to see. Lady... Shall I lie in your lap? I giggled. Okay, I get it. Great scene. We could stop, though. I know the lines. See, he said, you are the perfect Ophelia. I rolled my eyes and Philip leaned closer, the movement catching my breath in my throat. Both of us were quiet as he crouched on the carpet. For some reason, the way he touched my cheek at his front door crossed my mind. Then the way he'd grinned at me at intermission, and all the times we'd hung out backstage when he'd told me he loved talking to me. My pulse raced a little quicker. Had I missed something in my Ophelia obsession? Philip curved his hands around my knees, increasing the pace of my heartbeat. And what a fair thought to lie between this maid's legs. That's not the line, I whispered. The look on his face was different. Not Hamlet. Not Philip. It was sweet and smitten, like the one I'd seen him wear as Romeo last year. I swallowed the lump in my throat as he inched his mouth closer to mine. You're right, it's not. I'd never seen him more handsome. You're perfect, Nat. This had to be a dream, an Ophelia-inspired daydream that I had somehow wandered into. But then Philip kissed me. His lips, like his hands, were soft on my skin, and I surrendered to the press of his mouth. When I parted my lips, the tip of his tongue grazed mine and sent tingles down my spine. I opened wider, letting him in, and then we were kissing with all the passion I imagined Ophelia would have shared with Hamlet if she'd had the chance. God, I've wanted to kiss you for months, he whispered between kisses. I couldn't move, couldn't breathe. Philip climbed onto the couch, taking me into his arms. But more, I've wanted to be alone with you, really alone with you, Nat. No drama, no Esquire chaos. His kiss was fast to my lips as he guided me back against the armrest. I trembled as his hands roamed my sides, then my breasts, caressing me like I dreamed of more than I'd ever dreamed of being Ophelia. When Philip caught the hem of my shirt, I flashed him an eager smile. He drew it over my head and traced his fingers across my belly, then my bra, his dark Hamlet eyes pouring over me. My pussy flooded with heat, and I shivered with the depth of his gaze. He looked as serious as he did on stage, except happier and more lustful. I grabbed at his shirt and unbuttoned it down to his waist, the sweetest whiff of him filling my nose as I exposed more of his skin. When Philip shrugged the fabric off his shoulders, he stunned me with the chest I'd seen so many times backstage, but this time naked with me. He lay over my body, and you'll have to read the rest.
Thank you, Jade. Um, can we have these waters? Are they for us? Thank you. Do you guys want a water? Um, our next reader is also from Northern California, and this is her very first reading, so please give her a big round of applause. Jocelyn Bringus is the author of Heartthrob Fantasy and Heartthrob Daddy. Her stories have been published in various erotica anthologies, such as Zane's Caramel Flava and My Yes Sir Erotic Stories of Female Submission, and you can find out more about her at flirtingwithobscene.com. Jocelyn. Hi, everyone. It's such an honor to be here. Thanks to Skylight, and thank you to Rachel. Um, I'm going to be reading my story. It's titled Taste, and it was inspired by this pickup line that I overheard uh, somebody saying at work. So here it goes. (laughs) The cool San Francisco air was refreshing on my skin after being stuck behind a stuffy cubicle for eight hours. I was following my routine of walking to the underground Embarcadero BART station to take my evening train ride home. When I reached the Market Street and Drum, I stood on the crowded sidewalk and waited for the signal to walk across the street. I wonder if you taste as good as you look. Either my hearing was deceiving me or some douchebag had just tried to use a lame pickup line on me. I turned around to face the douchebag in question. Initially, I expected someone of a short stature with an unfortunate unibrow. My mouth dropped when my eyes drank up the perfect specimen uh, standing before me. I was totally judging his book by its cover. He was a hot blonde wearing a crisp white dress shirt with matching white trousers. He towered over my five foot two frame. My neck tilted back to get a better look at his face. His eyebrows weren't unibrow. They arched perfectly above his piercing blue eyes that were obviously looking down my top. The corner of his lips curved into a panty dropping smirk. Whoever this man was, he wasn't trained in the art of subtlety. What if I do, I asked him. He leaned in toward me, his face inches away from mine. My eyes fixated on his, which were a state of blue that held power. I stood my ground, though. I didn't move toward him or away from him. I wasn't going to give him the satisfaction of a reaction to his proximity. Do you care to provide a sample, then? I shook my head. No. I turned around and urged the traffic signal to change so I could escape this man, who was probably a criminal. The signal changed, and that was my cue to walk. I was in such a hurry to walk across the street that I failed to notice a bike messenger headed toward me. Before I could collide with the bike messenger, I felt a pair of hands pull me out of the way. My back came in contact with the front of a hard body as the bike messenger zipped by at lightning speed. I was so overcome with shock that it took me a few minutes to realize whoever had pulled me out of the way was holding me possessively and not letting go. You sure smell good, so you must taste good, the voice of the hot blonde spoke into my ear. I should have been disgusted. I should have been screaming for help. I should have been fighting with all my strength to peel away from him. Instead, my body betrayed me as an electric thrill passed through my system. It had been a while since I'd been intimately close to a man. I didn't even know his name. He nudged me forward, and my legs hustled across the busy crosswalk. I continued taking the same path I'd taken every workday for the past year and a half, except this time I was completely self-conscious with every step. Was he still trailing behind me looking at my ass? I didn't dare look back. I was afraid of the answer to that question. Once I made it inside one of the BART trains, I stood among the commuters, with my mind replaying what had happened earlier. An attractive man had bluntly made a pass at me in the middle of my evening rush to leave work and go home. He made a pass at me after I'd spent eight grueling hours at work, when I knew I looked tired and worn. My evil insecurity sneered at me. It was probably a joke for his own entertainment. I'd probably never see him again in the sea of people that walk through San Francisco. Around 40 minutes later, the train arrived at the last stop. 
As I walked toward the exit, my stomach flooded with anticipation when I saw him. He stood confident like a statue as the other commuters hurriedly passed by him to get off the train. His bedroom eyes moved off me as I walked toward him. I found it ironic he was all dressed in white like an innocent angel from heaven. The smirk he wore on his lips, though, suggested he was anything but innocent. I slowed my stride. Why was I walking toward him? I turned around and scurried to another train door to leave. I stepped onto the platform and then walked to the parking lot to find my car. My hamstrings were burning by the time I made it there. As I sped out of the parking lot, I looked to see if he was following me. I didn't see him. It was only when I got onto the freeway that I felt safe. Getting out of bed the following morning was a struggle. I tossed and turned most of the night. Visions of the hot blonde tasting my body with his tongue looped in my mind like a persistent late-night infomercial. I thought about calling in sick, but I didn't want to put a dent in my attendance record. The whole day I was distracted at work, and I couldn't concentrate on anything. Once the clock hit 5.30, I left the office and walked toward the Embarcadero BART station. I admit, my eyes were on the prowl for the hot blonde as I approached the train station. My body tensed when I came to the same corner at Market Street and Drum, where he had wondered out loud about how I tasted. I wished I'd given him a sample. He probably had forgotten about me. There was no denying he was hot, so he'd probably picked up another woman. My stomach turned at the image of him tasting someone else. Once I was inside the train, I found a seat and sat down. I stared out the window as the scenery of the Bay Area slid by. I tried to push out any thoughts of the hot blonde with the important topic of what I could have for dinner when I got home. About 15 minutes later into the ride, a hand settled on my right thigh. My body jolted in surprise. I turned to face the perpetrator. It was the man I had tried to forget. I reminded myself to breathe. How is it possible for someone to become increasingly hot after 24 hours? <laughs> My eyes were salivating at the sight of him. His blonde hair was gelled up perfectly. All I wanted to do was run my fingers through it and mess it all up. He wore a, dr a blue dress shirt and black trousers that were most likely tailor-made to cling to his body in all the necessary places. I became aware of his hand on my thigh when I felt his fingers graze around my black pencil skirt. I looked down at his hand and wondered what its intentions were. I still want to know if you taste as good as you look. Really? He nodded his head. I should have been turned off by his bluntness. Instead, my head was swirling with images of his tongue working its magic between my thighs. He must have seen my explicit thoughts because his hand drifted closer to my core. I don't even know your name, I blurted out. Jack, remember that. You'll be screaming it later. <laughs> I couldn't help but laugh at Jack's use of pickup lines. This had to be a joke. At any moment, he was going to halt his seductive touching and laugh his pretty ass off. You seem pretty sure of that, Jack. He flashed a smile. I guarantee it. In addition to pickup lines, he also liked to use commercial slogans. <laughs> the train operator announced the last stop. Jack took my hand and gripped it possessively. I tried to yank it away, but his grip was firm. Kidnapping is against the law, I said, as he led me through the train station's parking lot. Jack stopped in his tracks and faced me. I felt the heat from his eyes burn into me. I barely knew him, yet my body wanted all of him. You're not a kid, and I'm not letting you nap. Jack recaptured my hand, and we continued walking until we reached a white Cadillac Escalade. I can't leave my car here, I said. Who said we're leaving? You're in good hands. Jack let go of my hand to pull out his car key remote. This was my chance to run away from him again. I sent a message to my legs to start moving, but my body was stubborn. Jack opened the rear passenger side door and gestured for me to go inside. I climbed in and sat down. He soon followed and shut the door. It was official. I was crazy. I had let an attractive stranger lure me into a car. It was the kind of situation law enforcement always warned against. He was probably going to kill me, and I had willingly stepped into his trap. Silence filled the escalade. 
Jack rested his arm on the back seat as he, his eyes examined me. I wondered what he was thinking about. Was he plotting different ways to kill me, or was he thinking of tasting me? Why was the latter question turning me on? <laughs> Jack broke the silence. I've never had a woman run away from me before. Never say never. And yet tonight you didn't run away, which means you've been thinking about letting me have a taste of you. A blush crept into my cheeks. I must be very transparent. He scooted closer to me. My right thigh was touching his left thigh. I was reminded of his height when I saw how much longer his legs looked next to mine. I don't know why you're fixated on tasting me, Jack. Are you sure you're not just hungry for food? There are lots of places to eat down the street. I was rambling and judging by his smirk, he knew it. He leaned in close. His hot breath swept across my face. They don't have what I want on the menu. Jack's face, uh, Jack's voice dripped sex. The ache between my legs grew unbearable. I squeezed my thighs in an attempt to provide some relief. It wasn't enough. I needed to be touched. He took one of my hands and brought it to the hem of my pencil skirt. He guided me in dragging the hem up until my skirt was bunched up at my waist. I separated my thighs and awaited his next move. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Thank you, Jocelyn. And maybe if you want to ask her during the Q&A, there, there's also a celebrity, I believe, inspiration for her story that she did not mention, but that she told me in an interview I did on our, on our Tumblr. So maybe you can tell us more about that later. Um, I'm going to finish off with a brief reading from Volume 2. Um, what you need to know about this story is it's called Wordless Surrender by Janelle Reston. And Allie is a hearing-impaired dominant, and Marbeth is her submissive. Inside the bedroom, removing Marbeth's raincoat was like unwrapping a gift. She wore nothing under the tur turquoise shell other than what Allie had commanded and was all the more lovely for it. Her firm breasts, mounds of fresh cream dotted with caramel nipples, stood proudly over the red latex corset, hugging her torso from lower ribs to hips. Its black laces pulled snug to moderately restrict her breathing. The crotch of her negligible scarlet briefs was damp with arousal. Ellie hung the coat on a hook by the bedroom door, pulling the collar from its pocket as she did so. The leather was flexible and warm from Marbeth's body heat. Marbeth stepped closer, the exquisite scent of fresh skin mixed with citrus and cardamom wafting from her skin. She raised her chin, elongated, elongating and exposing her neck. Allie brushed her fingers along the smooth skin, pausing over the carotid artery to feel Marbeth's pulse. Marbeth's lips parted slightly, her throat expanding as she sucked in a sharp breath. Are you mine? The steel lock and key brushed against Allie's wrist as she signed the words. Marbeth eyed it hungrily. If you will have me. Allie latched the collar around Marbeth's throat. She removed the lock from the chain on her wrist and slipped it through the collar's buckle. The expression on Marbeth's face became noticeably more relaxed the instant Allie locked it. The tension melted from her cheeks and the corners of her eyes. Her lower jaw dropped, letting go of its stranglehold on her upper teeth. Her breasts heaved as she took a shuddering breath, her lips quivering as the air passed through them. I am yours, my queen, and I live to serve you. Allow me to make you happy today. Allie smiled. I have a surprise for you. Hold out your hands. Marbeth said nothing as she surrendered her hands to Allie, holding them palms up before her body. But her brows were question marks. She furrowed them the way people do in American Sign Language when asking why. She might as well have signed the word. Because it pleases me, Allie answered. Marbeth blushed, perhaps over embarrassment for asking a question without permission, or perhaps because pleasing Allie was her pleasure. Allie didn't worry about the reason. Instead, she took pleasure in how the blush made Marbeth's cheeks pink and darkened her lips. Allie wondered if Marbeth's labia were already the same shade of rose. Allie removed the handcuffs from the drawer, leaving the chain and padlock that linked them behind for the moment. She set one in Marbeth's right palm as she looped the other around Marbeth's left, left wrist. Marbeth's eyes were heavy on her, and she buckled it in place, and heavier as Allie proceeded to cuff her right wrist as well. Do you trust me, Allie signed? 
Yes. Allie turned back to the dresser to remove the chain and its padlock. They were cold. Ellie clutched them to infuse her body heat into the metal before dropping both into Marbeth's open palms. Marbeth gulped. The lock over her throat swayed. You understand what I want, Ellie asked, to bind my, wrist, to bind my hands together. With her fingers clasped around the chain, Marbeth's words were clumsy and muffled. Still, Ellie understood them. You are very good at using words to communicate with me, but words aren't the only way to communicate. We must read each other's bodies and spirits as well, our breaths, our scents, the tension and relaxation of our muscles, the way each of us reacts to touch. I want to read you in a different way. Marbeth's pupils grew wide and dark, encroaching on her irises until they were nothing but thin gold halos. She licked her lips. Ellie's plan for today was the right one. She turned to the drawer and pulled out a large jingle bell that she immediately dropped to the floor. In an instant, Herman was at her ankles, nudging her calves to get her attention, then nosing the bell to show her it had fallen. She patted him on the head and dismissed him, watching as his white tail disappeared behind the partially open bedroom door. She picked up the bell and pressed it into Marbeth's palm beside the chain. The bell is your safe word. Shake or drop it, and I'll know to stop. You can read the rest in the book. Um, Thank you, everybody. I wanted to plug an event that's happening tomorrow night. I unfortunately have to go home tonight, so I can't be there. But my friend Elle Chase just wrote a book called Curvy Girl Sex. And she's having a book party from 7 to 10 tomorrow at the Pleasure Chest in Hollywood. So if you enjoy tonight, you'll probably enjoy that. Um, You can find out more at lchase.com. I think we we have time for questions. Okay, we have time for questions. Do you guys want to come up? Questions? Okay, I'll, I'll ask Jocelyn about the, the celebrity inspiration while you guys think of some questions for us. Can you tell us about the, the celebrity inspiration you told me about? Okay, so I'm still stuck in the late 90s. I love boy bands. So uh, my number one boy band is Backstreet Boys. Yeah, and my, my fave is Nick Carter. And he posted this picture in 2013 on Instagram where he was like wearing all white and he was just like looking like sexy into the camera. And I was like, okay, I can see him saying that pickup line with that face that I want to know how you taste. Yeah, so that, that was what helped push it. <laughs> there you go. There's also embedded in their erotica writing tip, search Instagram or Pinterest or Flickr. Tumblr. Tumblr. Yes. Um, when you're writing stories, are you... experience and like how I feel and that's how I do it. (laughs) I'm usually more inspired by words like I'll overhear someone say a phrase which of course I can't really think of one right now or there's that is there a tv show called necessary roughness Yes, there is, right? And it's also like a sports term, which of course I don't know. But I love that (laughs) phrase, and I still haven't figured out the right story to go with it, but I I really want to write a story called that. So like for me, it's usually words, but once in a while, it's pictures. I'm rarely inspired by pictures. I like to look at them, though. Um, I think for me, it's it's usually I will overhear something, or I I have like this, I have like a... um, it's an idea stork, and it just, it like pops first lines in my head a lot. I don't know why. It's just like I'll be running, and then suddenly, oh, that line, and I'll repeat it all the way, so all the way till I get home, so. <laughs> More questions? Anyone? Yes. You, and then you. What advice would you guys have for uh, fledgling uh, authors? I think when you can bring 
your own either interests and passions or knowledge. Not that's not to say like you can only write erotica about things that you've done, but you know if you know about. Um, okay, the first thing that popped in my mind was race car driving, and I really don't know how you would write race car driving erotica, but maybe you would. But like or whatever. I mean, maybe you know about. Um, the opera, there's a story set at the opera um, in volume two, or, you know, I used to play chess as a teenager, and I once wrote a chess erotica story that I don't think I would have been able to write if I hadn't, but you can, you can also research on the internet, but I think taking bits of knowledge you might have, whether they're sexual knowledge or other kinds of knowledge, and like tweaking them and, you know, infusing that like the way Jade did um, in her Ophelia story, I think that that's something that I would recommend. Not that you have to every time, but it, it can lend a vividness to a story. Um, I recommend reading. I'm a fledgling writer myself, and um, and in fact, when I forgot to give my little origin that you told us uh, origin of this piece that I read. Um, when I knew I wanted to submit to Rachel, the first thing I did was I read her, I read as much as of her books that I could get my hand on. That was bad grammar, but I'm a little nervous. But reading, 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 and, um, and then also once you're accumulating drafts, find somebody who you trust who you can share your work with because, um, new writers, and, and frankly, gosh, everybody ends up with clarity issues and just things that don't quite make sense. So um, find some trusted readers and, and keep exchanging work. That's what I and I have one more tip. Um, I often edit anthologies that are based around a theme, and I love people who approach the theme a little sideways or in an unusual way that I would never thought of. I edited a book of Mile High Club airplane sex stories, and there were a lot of neighbors on the plane or flight attendant, but there was also a story where I believe the pilot was blindfolded and had to like trust the other person to fly the plane or trust that it was happening, and this is a little while ago, so it's not all crystal clear, but there's also a story called Wing Walker. Wing Walker. So I think when you can take a subject and sort of just add something unusual that most people would have never come up with. Um, that's something. You had a question? Yeah, I was just curious about your courage to write erotica and how you deal with your public persona versus your personal life. That's a great question that we just discussed at dinner earlier. Um, for me, I started writing erotica when I was in law school, and it you know, I just started doing it on a whim. I didn't really think that it would be my career. So I used my real name. Um, I didn't really think about it that much. And I, I don't know, looking back, whether I would have made that the same decision. But the thing I tell writers, I would say the majority of people who um, submit stories to me or in my books use pseudonyms, I think you want to really think hard about using your real name because there, there can be consequences that, that you might not realize, you know, it, it's going to be out there forever and it might not, even if it's in print, you know, it's also going to be online like, it, it can be found out, and I'm not saying that's a bad thing per se, but even though it's 2017, there is still a lot of judgment about that um, so um, you know, and I think it can be freeing to have a pseudonym that people who use them might want to talk about that. I, I think that can be freeing. I, I've used a pseudonym at times for short stories where, for various reasons, I just felt more comfortable or found the writing process easier to sort of pretend in my head to be someone else. I don't know if anyone else wants to tackle that. Okay, so I wrote... Um, I wrote sci-fi fantasy for a long time, and I do this because it was crap, um, because that's what I thought I wanted to write, and then I kept fighting the urge to write erotica, despite the fact that everyone kept saying, you write these really titillating stories, you are aware of that, right? Um, and then finally, like four years ago, just said, I'm going to just do it. And then I started doing it, and it just poured out, and it was fun, and I just said, that's what, that's what I write, guys, so that's... My experience. <laughs> I, I use a pseudonym, like I said earlier, and um, I also write under my birth name. And um, I'm trying really hard not to um, put too much shame on my pseudonym. Because, and so that's why I started saying, instead of saying me and my, my pen name as, I, I always refer to my pen name as third person, which sounds really psychotic. But now I also find that I refer to 
my birth name as my birth name because actually I'm kind of learning to inhabit both names. And my goal is... I would love to be able to stand up here with my real name and talk about labias with my niece and, you know, what turns us on. But that's really, really complicated, particularly with my niece by marriage who is only nine years old and, you know, can use the Internet and find out, you know. So, so I keep it secret right now, and, and, it, and I don't have a good answer. I always turn to people like Jade and Rachel. Rachel knows so many authors and just kind of look at, well, find a mentor. What are, what are the experts doing? And um, everybody has to choose their own path and their own limits. So I'm still highly uncomfortable with it, but, um, but it's fun also. So no, I don't know if that answers the question. I also I think that anything that will allow you to write in your most freest state, like mental state, I think that's what I would encourage people to do. Like if just the idea of using your real name is getting in the way of the writing process, then I think it's not necessarily helpful um and and for me the times I've written with a pseudonym I've actually written differently and it's been kind of a different freeing experience um I don't know exactly why sometimes I just put at the top of the page like a male pseudonym and that lets me into that mind space and sometimes it's just a different name and I I don't know just I maybe I write something different than I would write so did you have a question? Um, with my publisher, Cleus Press, which is a small or independent press, it's about about a year. Um, it depends. Um, I don't remember exactly. I, with smaller publishers, I think it's generally like it can be it can be a year to two years. It can be less time. Um, I think it depends, I mean, I think it depends on various factors, like they might have, like a publisher, it's 2017, they probably have their, they have their 2017 plan, and they probably have their 2018 plan, so, like, if you sign a book deal tomorrow, like, I think most of them, it it would probably be coming out in 2019, but the one one exception to that is e-publishers, there's a lot of e-book publishers, especially in erotica, and their timelines are much shorter because there's not as many hurdles, like they can get the book up more quickly. Um, There's a great website if you are interested in writing erotica, erotica erotica-readers.com, the Erotica Readers and Writers Association, they have a lot of articles, mailing lists, um, calls for writing, resources, just all sorts of stuff, and they talk about those things as well. Do you want to answer that? Sure. Um, So I have just the the one book out so far, but the whole series has moved very fast. It's with Karina Press, which is an e-book subdivision of Harlequin. Um, I wrote the first book in the end of 2013, and then I went the agent route, um, and then that took a while, and then we took on the whole series, and it's been very fast since it was accepted. So, like, first book came out in December. I'm almost done editing the third book, which is coming out in June. So um, it's been super fast. But I think I've always heard two years is what I've always traditionally heard. So I don't know if that's helpful. Okay, I think two more questions. Yes? One of you want to go first? Uh, for me, when I sit down to write, I just I don't plan it. I just let it happen and just see what sort of comes and structures and creates the the character. And then um, I like to write it first and then reread it again and then add a little more to the character and build around that. (laughs) So for short stories, I never plan. I just sit and I have like a sense of the person, but they're forming as I'm going usually. Um, And for novels, I I plan. I plan it like a lot. I have to have like pages of character sketches and what they're going to do and what their backstory is and what their greatest fears are and what they wear and all that stuff and then go from there. So. I'm probably a bad person to ask about this because I don't, I 
think I work more on plot than based on character and then kind of tweak after that. Um, And I, I usually just have a like, did you say you have the first line come to you? I usually have some of the lines come to me, and then I start writing based on that, and then I see where it's going. But if I have ideas that are going too fast for me to keep up with, I'll make notes of, like, okay, I want this to happen, this to happen, this to happen. Um, so that's how I usually work. I um, I don't plan either. I'm still in, in working in short stories, and... Um, there was a period when I was blogging, and you can see it, melinagreenport.com, um, about a story a week. And sometimes then just to um, get ideas, I would play with structure or a particular prompt. But um, when I'm really just trying to actually write something better than a blog post, um, I listen to the characters. And when I finally put them in a room and make them talk to each other, they surprise me. And... Um, and and that's that's when I really enjoy writing the most when they start letting me know who they are. And again, I'm sounding a little crazy, but um, it makes writing fun to to listen to listen and watch and go in there. Flannery Connor talks about uh, there's a quote about descending to the concrete where fiction operates. And um, when you go and sit at the keyboard and 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 let yourself dream, I don't know. That's my my process anyway. Um, I'm going to take one more question and then we'll sign books. But before I forget, because I already did, um, if you are interested in writing erotica, um, there is that erotica-readers.com. I'm also editing a book of very short stories, 1,200 words or less. And you can find out the information at thebigbookofsubmission.tumblr.com. Um, the deadline's coming up pretty fast, February 15th, because I'm on a kind of tight deadline. But um, you can also, if you take a postcard, I have a mailing list where I send out information about future calls and there will be some more. One more question? Anyone? Okay. Thank you, everybody. We'll be here to sign books. Thank you for coming. Thank you to Skylight. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget that you can listen to this and all of our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by and we hope to see you soon.